Well, good morning, Oakwood. Do you ever feel like that arrow in that graphic sometimes where it's just like, man, it is, it is, it is dark in this world. It's harder and harder to uh, be a Christian, live and walk out the Christian faith. And sometimes you feel like, man, I feel like the whole world is saying, hey, this direction is the direction that we're supposed to be going. And yet we find out from Scripture that it's something completely Different. Well, that's where we're going to be in for the next several weeks as we look at how Christians are sometimes called to live counterculture. Now, I want to give you a little, uh, I guess you'd say shameless plug and a little caveat here is if you don't have the Oakwood app downloaded, you might want to do that today for sure. Um, we, we're going to be in tons of scripture today, John's gospel, book of Acts, Psalm, back to Genesis, then Proverbs, then Jeremiah, then John, then back to Psalms. So we're going to be all over the place. And I know if I were sitting in your seat, I would download the app and, and go to the notes in the app because all the scriptures are there for you. Now, you might be awesome at your sword drill, right? Got your Bible open. Sword drill, fine. Proverbs 16. Okay, and you, you know, and go for it, okay? I have an advantage because I have everything marked in my Bible, okay? So I have a huge advantage over most of you. But I encourage you to download the app. We want you to engage the Scripture, engage the Word of God, read it for yourself. There's a way in the app you can take notes on it. Um, you can also do that in your bulletin too. So just uh, want you to know about that uh, before we get into the Word uh, this morning. It's a weird time, I think, to live in our world because anyone, and I really mean this, anyone can have a platform. You can be an influencer. You might only have five followers, right? That's like me. I think I have five followers. But, um, but you have influence over those five people to hear whatever you want to say, whatever you want to proclaim. I mean, it's, it's an amazing time. Anyone, anyone could be an influencer because of our culture. We are in a plugged-in world where everything is online. It's at your fingertips. I mean, you, you could call it the use of, of screens, right? We, we carry these. Folks, these aren't phones anymore. These are microcomputers, okay? I mean, you could do everything on, on this. I mean, you can even, you know, download a calculator app, and it, it becomes a calculator. It's a computer. It's an online search engine. It's a communication tool. You download all these apps. you got all these platforms. And through all of this... We are inundated with messages as Christians. We are inundated nonstop all the time. Isn't it weird and a little creepy, if you ask me, that sometimes the advertising that you get on your phone, isn't that, isn't that crazy? I was just talking about corn on the cob, and I got this advertisement for three for one in Atwood's parking lot. I'm like, how do they do that? They read minds. No, they're listening to your every word. Um, but they read minds, you know, it's, it, and it's just crazy. And through all of this, this technology and through all these apps and all these different platforms, we have messages that are sent. And it's giving us this cultural pull. Okay, sometimes we as Christians and just I think in our human flesh form, we want to feel valued and accepted. And sometimes that means we go the same way as the people around us. But sometimes as Christians, we're called to go God's direction. Sometimes that's with the culture. I would say 30, 40 years ago, it was, it was with the culture. Culture, we're a Christian nation, you could say that. Now they're saying we're living in a post-Christian world, in a post-Christian culture. And some of you that maybe have some gray hair on your head, or no hair on your head for that matter, 
I'm, I'm going to join you there someday. Uh, so, some of you can really relate to this because you can think back to 40 or 50 years ago and how it felt in just the culture of the United States of America and how different it is today. And the culture says, I want you to value this, these things. I want you to know that this is our truth. Have you ever heard that term? Because I, I, I grew up in a world where there was truth and there was, there was you know, something was true or it was false. You know, something was right or it was wrong. It wasn't this, you know, it was, there wasn't this ambiguity to it. There wasn't this part where it's like, oh, it's, I, you know, it's my truth or our truth. And yet the culture just throws these messages at you all the time. And maybe you see people in your life, people that influence you in one way or the other. They have conversations or you follow them and you watch all their posts and read all their, read all their, uh, their postings or you watch all of their videos. That they actually have influence in your life because you're consuming what they're putting out. And what we need to be ready for as Christians is to know what absolute truth is. The great news about that is you can know that because it's all right here in God's word. And if you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, then you would say, this is my end all. This is where it stops for me in all matters of faith and practice when it comes to Christianity. I'm going to go by the person that wrote literally the book on it. And so we are called as Christians to follow God's word, even if it means we feel like that arrow where it's, man, we're like one against a ton, this wave crashing on, on us. And yet we are called by God to be that voice that follows him in absolute truth. I want to begin this morning in John's gospel, chapter one. At the beginning of John's gospel, the first, um, the first verse there, it says, in the beginning was the word, it's capital W, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God from the beginning. Okay, that Word is a reference to Jesus Christ in the Greek. That Word is Lagos. It's capitalized in the English for us, so we know that is a reference to deity, to the Son of God, and that being Jesus Christ. And then we get down, and he's continuing this commentary on the Word, and we get down to verse 14. John 1, 14 says this, And the Word became flesh, that was Jesus Christ, became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so Jesus, the Son of God, is full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. He, he's, he's doing this exaggeration there because of how much God loves us. That he's given us grace upon grace by sending Jesus Christ into the world. And it says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law, what we have in the Old Testament, all the rules and all the law came through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And everybody say, hallelujah, we have a source of truth. It actually comes from the Son of God himself. And then we skip ahead in John's gospel to chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. This is what it says. It says, to the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you will hold to my teaching. Did you catch that, Christians? Hold to my teaching. Don't be swayed. But what if everybody in my class at school says this is the way? Hold to my teaching teaching. But what if the world says that it's supposed to be this? Hold to, if, if you will hold to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. Oh, how do I know I'm a real follower of you? You hold to my teaching. Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't act like the rest of the world. We don't believe the same as the rest of the world. 
Scripture in the New Testament says we're even aliens. As a Christian, you're an alien in this world. We're, this world is not our home. We're living with the end in mind. We're living with future values of eternity on our hearts. And Jesus saying here, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And then guess what the benefit of this is? And then he says, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How's the truth freeing? Frees us from the bondage of sin. Frees us from the consequences of sin. Frees us up to not have to worry about all the messages and everything that the culture throws at us. We know what we believe because we study the Word of God and we believe it in Jesus Christ. In this series, we are going to be talking about some things in our culture as Americans that frankly are moving away from God, moving away from God's intentions, moving away from His original design, and that go against the word of God. And that's why in the spirit of Acts chapter 20, verse 27, where the apostle Paul said this, I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, that we're going to see a lot about what scripture says about things that are in our culture. Today we're going to talk about the preciousness of life, the preciousness of life. So our main text this morning is found in Psalm 139. So if you want to look that up in your Bible, if you're in the app, should be right there for you. Psalm 139, let's uh, read this together. Psalm 139, beginning with verse 1, going through 18. And pay attention, really, let these words just, just well up in you. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I love verse 6 there. There's so much truth in that. If we knew what God knows and understood what God understands, it is too lofty. We couldn't handle it. We'd be running for the exits. I mean... And yet God knows it all. He's totally omniscient. He knows everything. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And if I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkest darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. That's just speaking to the power of Almighty God. Verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that, full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. First thing we can gather from our, our scripture today is that God values every human life 
and so should his people. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are called by God to value human life. Now, this goes all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis and how we were even formed and created by God. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Something that jumps out at you there is God didn't say, Let me make man in my image, in my likeness. He said, Our Scholars believe that, and there's reference throughout the Bible, you could read it and figure it out for yourself, I really think, is that God was not alone in the beginning at creation. It's always been a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. And so then when he gathers the Son and the Holy Spirit and he's enjoyed creating the waters and the sky and the big light, the sun and the little light, the moon, and he's created all the animals, he's done all these creating, and he says, hey, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish, kind of like I rule over the universe. They can rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals of the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so we are image bearers of Almighty God. We are made in his likeness, made in his image. We are his most complex and most valued creation on the face of the earth because we're made in his image. We have cognitive abilities and emotional abilities and all kinds of vast things that we can do that no other creation can, can, can hold a candle to it on the face of the earth. And so we are God's special creation made as his image bearers in creation from the very beginning. And because God values us as image bearers, because he loves us so much. Look what it says in Genesis 9, 6. So this is just eight chapters later. It says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made all mankind. And God's sending a message there. You remember when sin entered the world in the garden? At that moment, death entered the world. And then we see this start play, starting to play out with Cain and Abel, didn't we? Just right at the very beginning. And God is saying here, hey, we're not going to shed human blood. If you shed human blood, by humans shall your blood be shed for in the image of God. These are my image bearers. I'm over their life. Okay, I'll decide when their expiration date is, and I'll decide when they come into this life. God has made mankind in his image. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, it says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. If you read, there's a, there's a couple on the list before, you know, a proud and haughty, haughty spirit. And when you get down to the third thing there, it says, hands that shed innocent blood. God hates and detests hands that shed innocent blood. Now, these are just a few scriptures and passages. I mean, we, we could spend an hour here going through all of the, the scriptures and passages that are in the word of God. But I think that as Christians, we can all agree that human life is valuable to God. All human life is precious to him because we see that we are made in his image and in his likeness. Because we are created most like God, he values our lives more than anything. 
Now, if we can all stack hands on that and say, oh, I agree with that. Yeah, we should value human life. Then where would you say, if you took a step back and you're looking at our world and you're looking at our culture, where would you say that we value life today? On the continuum, do we value life as much as we did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago? Do you feel like you would call us a culture of life or would you say, no, we're kind of going down this road of a culture of death? You see, there's this tension, though, in our culture about life. And if we can all agree that we're made in God's image, we all agree that God created us, we all agree that that's important to God, then there seems to be this one controversial question that comes out of this. And that is the question that I'm just going to call the when question. When is life precious to God? When, maybe, does life begin? When does God view us as his child and made in his image? When does all this happen? And I would say, because of absolute truth in God's word, go back to the text. Go back to verse 13 in Psalm 139. And this is what it says. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. And at that moment, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Look at all the descriptors there that are, are used, all of these, all of these verbs. It says, for you created my inmost being, knit me together, wonderfully made. In verse 15, I am made in the secret place. I was woven together, saw my unformed body, and I was written, my life was written down in your book before one of those days even came to be. You see, in our main text, we see that this unformed body, all the days ordained me, before written in your birth book, before one came to be, points to something that answers this when question. And here's a distinction I want to make this morning. Birth, when you give birth, birth doesn't create life, okay? Life manifest, birth manifests life that has already been created by God in the womb, okay? Birth doesn't create life. Birth manifests life that has already been created by God in the room. Now, the cool thing about this is we can know this for you. Like, oh, I don't know about that. We can know this for sure. Science proves it. Have you ever heard an ultrasound? You can actually see the baby when it's in the womb. We actually, uh, with our third uh, child, our third daughter, when she was born, we actually were asked by doctors because of some things that had happened with our first two to go to Oklahoma City and to get a 4D ultrasound. Have any of you ever experienced that or seen one, maybe seen one online or you had a friend? That is amazing. I mean, you can see, you can make sure their eyes have eyelashes in a 4D. I mean, you can see all of these features. It is absolutely amazing. And you can look at that baby before it's taken a breath outside of the room, and you can see life. You, you, know, you know there's an ultrasound. Oftentimes, they'll do the, the audible thing where they'll listen to the heartbeat, and you hear the whoosh, 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 whoosh. I mean, it's amazing. You can, it's all these things point to this. And so this isn't something that I think is confusing that, oh, oh, you know, when they give birth and that's when, when life, life begins. No, life is going on even in the womb. God says here that even in 
the unformed body before one of your days came to be, I knew you. It speaks to something else in our culture, just not the life of a child. But I think also our culture does not value life of the aged. Sometimes I think we don't value the life of the sick or infirmed. You know, something I never thought I'd have to deal with growing up was this thing called assisted suicide. Until, wasn't it, the doctor about 20, 25 years ago came out on the scene and then all of a sudden we started talking about it was this thing of assisted suicide because somebody wanted to take their own life because they were older or they were suffering. Then the question of the culture became, you know, well, do we value older life or should we just disregard older life? There's a struggle between what is more valuable. Is it older life or younger life? You could even maybe put an age on it. Is, or or maybe, maybe it's a question like this. Is a diseased person in a diseased life less valuable than someone who's 100% healthy? Is someone that maybe, that maybe has some kind of, of deformity or, or has some kind of, of mental struggle, emotional struggle, or a physical ailment or struggle of some type, does, does God not love them and value them as much as someone who's completely healthy and doesn't have any of those issues? Sometimes we get to this point where we talk about taking a life. That used to be shocking in our culture. Folks, not anymore. I mean, it was like 40 years ago they said that, that uh, we would see on the television like one to two murders a year. Folks, it's in every show now. Um, we are no longer this culture of life. I feel like we are this culture of death. And let's just, if we, if we could just say this, our culture doesn't value life as much as it did in the past. Could we all say, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can, I can kind of see that. I, I, can kind of, I can kind of understand what you're saying. Next thing we need to understand is that God is the creator and the sustainer of life. Now, this is really basic and fundamental. God creates the life, and I think we already talked about that. But he's also the sustainer of life. Uh, food, water, the environment uh, in this, on this earth being right for us to exist. God is the sustainer of life, and not only in those physical ways, but also emotional ways, spiritual ways. Isn't it amazing how God sustains life for a baby? Because the baby comes out and what? Baby can't feed itself. Right? Baby, baby, baby needs help, you know, has to, can't change its own diaper, can't wipe its own nose, can't wipe other things. I mean, these babies are helpless, right? And God in his sustaining of life has created this, this thing called the family unit, a mother and a father that would help raise his child, sustain life. God is the creator and the sustainer of life. It's amazing even throughout scripture how many times biblical prophets, biblical writers refer to themselves from the beginning and how God has ordained them to a position. God has sustained them from the beginning. I'm just going to give you one example this morning. There are many in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Low-hanging fruit though for me because I remembered it was Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Prophet Jeremiah, Old Testament. He says this, Actually, this is the Lord talking about the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.5. God says this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you, I, I, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. <laughs> before you were even born. Before you are outside the womb, I already set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And see 
as you read the book of Jeremiah and you read about the life of the prophet Jeremiah, you can see that God sustained his life. I, I was thinking of all these biblical writers where God sustained their life, sometimes through great hardship, sometimes when people were coming against them. I thought of the prophet Isaiah. I thought of Elijah. Do you remember Elijah? Remember Elijah was so scared there for a while. He was like, Lord, just take my life. But he didn't take his own life. Why? Because he knew I am not the creator and the sustainer of life. That's God's design. And I bet you Elijah was pretty happy with his choice, right? Because what happens to him at the end of his life? Taken up in a chariot of fire to heaven? Wow. God is the creator. He's also the sustainer of life. And we know this because he loves us so much. He gives us everything. The scripture says he gives us everything that we need for life and for godliness. God is the creator and the sustainer of all life. Our life is literally in his hands. So the third thing from this this morning that we need to get is that we live in a culture that devalues all human life, and we need to shine God's truth into that darkness. The questions of the culture have gotten specific. Let me share a couple that I've seen online that I just, I'll give you verbatim. Is the 84-year-old's life as valuable as the 20-year-old's? Now, I don't know if you'd have seen that, you know, a long time ago, but that's out there today. What about life inside or outside of the womb? It's interesting because some people debate when life begins, and yet they'll say that I should have the right to take the life of my baby. Oh, wait, wait, they're not alive yet. I thought, oh, we're going to take the life of my baby while it's still in the womb. We live in a culture that's struggling with death over life. Murder rates are skyrocketing Those stories of murder and death used to shock us. They don't anymore. But I'm going to take a step back and go even further into this and think about some of these things. Our contemporary art today reflects a culture of death. I mean, skulls and crossbones, we are obsessed with that stuff. If you do some research online for American culture, you see some of those things come up. You can Google images and, and look at some of these things. It's reflected in some of, in some of our art. It's reflected in some of our clothing. Then, then now, you know, you might have something with just this gruesome, you know, this T-shirt that has this gruesome uh, scene of death on it. It has something that's celebrating death or darkness. It's in certain styles, You can find it in media, in multimedia. You can find all of these things that seem like it's celebrating death. How about our gaming today, folks? Have any of you paid attention to the gaming? It's always shooting to kill, to decimate. It is this culture of death, darkness. And it seems like every day we succumb to it. We get a little more numb to it. And what maybe bothered us really bad five or six years ago doesn't really bother us at all today. I mean, I'll watch that garbage that I used to think was so shocking and garbage. It's the way of the culture, folks. It's, it's, it's not that we're going to ask you to do an about face and to go this direction with the world. It's we're, we're just going to tiptoe. You know, you guys remember, what about Bob? The movie, what about Bob? Three people laughed, okay. 
tiptoe, you know, just baby steps, baby steps that direction. It's not necessarily, but I think it's getting bolder. I think it's getting more in your face. I think it's, hey, about face, head that direction. And you better be ready to go that way. But I think if we're being honest, we can just be honest with ourselves this morning and say, hey, we today live in a culture that devalues human life, all human life. And we need to shine God's truth into that darkness. I was thinking about Jesus's example, how Jesus shows us that he values life. Jesus valued all life, sinful life, woman caught in the act of adultery. The law said stone her to death. Now, where was the, the guy that was committing the adultery? Oh, yeah, I don't know. He got off. Uh, yeah, maybe he was somebody, maybe a prominent business in town. I don't know. But that story focuses on the woman, and Jesus values her life. So much to the point he protects her from being stoned. And then he's at the end of that, in, in John chapter 8, I believe, at the end of that, he says, where are your accusers? Where are those that accuse you? you know, who are they? And she's like, there's no one, sir. And Jesus says, go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. I'm saving your life in two ways here. I'm saving it spiritually, and I'm saving it physically. Do you remember stories when, when the disciples would bring the little children to Jesus? And the way it was in the culture back then is children, you know, you know adults were like, I don't play with children. You know, I, like, I, don't, I don't do, you know, children, children were kind of pushed down in the culture. And Jesus told the disciples, no, these lives are important to me. You let these little children come unto me. For it's... It's faith such as these that you adults have to have to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see that Jesus values life so much that's recorded in scripture that he wept. When did Jesus weep? At the sadness of the tomb of Lazarus. And you think, Lazarus? Dude, I know that story. Lazarus? That's the scene where he says, roll the stone away. And in the King James, it says, because Lazarus had been, had been dead for a couple of days there, uh, it says that he stinketh. And the King James actually says that. So they're like, oh, why do you want us to roll the stone away, Jesus? Because he stinketh. And it's like, yeah, roll the stone away anyway. And you know the story that Jesus calls into that tomb. I love the, I love the way that Carmen did that song, if you know that song from the past, where it's Lazarus, Jesus, Lazarus, Jesus, Lazarus, Jesus, come forth. Lazarus comes out of that grave. But it's interesting, it's before all that happened, it says that Jesus wept because he loves image bearers of himself and his heavenly father. He valued life, every single life, even life that maybe didn't deserve it. Zacchaeus, tax collector, we little man. Collecting taxes for the Romans and patting his pocketbook on the backside. And Jesus says, hey, I value you so much. I want to eat dinner with you. I want to share fellowship. Like, true fellowship. I'm I'm going to your house. I'm going to be your guest today. Of all the people Jesus could have ate with, Zacchaeus, that everyone in town hated, and it was so short he had to climb a tree to see Jesus, that guy, Jesus valued life. The last thing this morning, Jesus came to offer every person full and 
abundant life through a saving relationship with him. Folks, you got to get this. Every life. Jesus Christ and the gospel is for everyone. Think of the person that you dislike the most. Jesus died for them. Think of the person Think of the person that you just think is darkness. Like you feel the presence of darkness when you're around them. They, you just think of evil. And you, I mean, they could make your skin crawl. Jesus and the gospel is for everyone, yes, even them. Jesus died to offer salvation to anyone, to anyone who would accept him. To anyone that would call on their name. To anyone that would repent of their sins. And turn toward Jesus Christ and move his direction in life. And there's a bunch of people that are in this sanctuary right now and in this church this morning that could share their story of before Christ and after they came to Jesus. <clears throat> and they could offer you horrific things that happened when they were living life like the world. When they were letting the culture speak into their life. There's so much scripture that talks about this too. Uh, one of my favorites is John 10.10. 10, John's Gospel 10.10. 10. Jesus was speaking to the disciples, and he said this. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes to steal. He loves the culture of death. He comes to kill, and he comes to destroy. Sometimes, yeah, that's actually like a physical thing. He would, he would love to take a life, but he comes to steal dreams. He comes to steal our kids. Send them off in some dark direction in life. He comes to kill marriages and to kill your finances. He comes to destroy homes and tear families apart. He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's what Satan comes to do. He's the thief. He's the thief. And then Jesus says, but I have come that they may have a life and have it to the full. Some translations there say, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Now, you coming in this morning, let's be 100% honest. How many of you want a full, abundant life? That sound like a good thing? It's like, sign me up. I want a full, abundant life. And that's what Jesus Christ offers us. But it is only possible through a relationship with him. But he loves us so much that he made the way. I love what it says in Psalm 16. 11, back to the Old Testament. It says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. It's like he lays out the path of life right there. You make known to me the path of life. What is that path of life? That we would have joy, abundant life in his presence presence walking with Jesus Christ daily and with the eternal pleasures what are you, what is he talking about there eternal pleasures at your right hand he's talking about heaven folks you're aliens we're aliens in this world this world is not our home don't get comfortable here don't live your whole life to acquire things or to acquire relationships that are only here we are called to live for something far, far more eternal than here. And that's why he says, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The eternal pleasures of being in the presence of God. The eternal pleasures 
of heaven that we read so much about in Scripture. You see, folks, God values every life, and we are called to value every life too. And God didn't stop there. In fact, he loves every life so much and desires to have a relationship with everyone that he's created so much that he made a sacrifice through his son, Jesus. You see, going back to the garden, when sin entered the world, part of that judgment was death entered the world. You see a judgment passed on Adam and Eve right after that, that God says, your days are numbered. Now, he's still over it. He's still the creator and the sustainer of life. But he says, hey, there, you now have an expiration date. And to sustain you, here's the rule. Because of your sin, when there is sin, something has to die. There will be a blood sacrifice when there is sin. If you ever wonder what, all, what are all the animal sacrifices in all of the, in all of the uh, um, Old Testament, what's that all about? I mean, some of that's really gory. Very specific. Got to offer, you know, got to offer a firstborn unblemished lamb. Well, here's a goat. Well, here's a ram. Or here's a pigeon. Or here's, you know, there's all these sacrifices. And what is all the killing of the animals all about? Folks, God's sending a message. It's what we read at the beginning in Genesis chapter 9. That he takes this stuff serious. He takes sin serious. But the great thing about God is he loves you so much, he made a way for you through Jesus Christ. And you can't get there on your own. And some of you have been trying. You're like, man, if I'm just good, I'll just quit cussing and, and, and I'll, I'll quit looking at that stuff and I'll be faithful to my spouse and I'll quit stealing money at work. If I just like clean up my act, it'll get me into heaven. No, it's only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The good news is God loves you and values your life so much. He's made Jesus Christ available. And if you've never heard the story of the gospel before, welcome to God's church. You have a choice to make, as all of us do. Choose the way of the world. Choose to go with the culture. Or choose Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn back and go God's direction in life. All of this is possible because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Why don't we sacrifice animals today? The law says that we should. It's because Jesus came once and for all and was the ultimate final sacrifice. No more animals. The blood of the Son of God pays the price forever for our sins. We're about to take communion this morning, and hopefully when you came in, you got the, the bread and the cup if you're with us online right now, hopefully you've made those arrangements at home. You get that bread in that cup. That bread represents Jesus' body. And that cup represents his blood. And Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. And what I love about Psalm 1611, that last, that last scripture we just read, when it talks about the pathway of life, is it says that we are to be in his presence. Joy is found in his presence. This meal that we're about to share with Jesus Christ himself is a meal about his presence being in our life. It's a reminder that, that God loved us so much. He sent Jesus to earth. He took on human form just like us. And he suffered massively and died. That bread represents his body. That cup represents his blood. And it's a reminder to us that he paid the price for our sins 
And so he would say to you this morning, don't walk in those sins any longer, but turn to me and I will give you life, life to the full, a more abundant life, and it's only possible through a relationship with me. You get your relationship with me right, you're going to be amazed at how your life gets right. Not always easy. You're like an arrow going against the culture, but possible because of Jesus. Just think about that, folks. God loved you so much that he sent his son to die in your place and in my place. The sinless man died for all the sinners so that we could have joy in his presence now and ultimate joy in his presence in heaven someday. 